0: We don't resolve the pain from the past. It will come along with us into our adult lives and relationships, and it will run the show. Right? It will be the thing that creates and maintains the unwanted patterns in your life, Right, whether it's the same conflict that you have with a partner or a parent or your adult child, whether it's the fact that you date emotionally unavailable people over and over again, whether it's the fact that you're chronically unhappy at every job that you have. Whatever the unwanted pattern is that's in your life right now, that is the thing that's pointing you back to something that is unresolved. Right, mm-hmm. Patterns will let us know. That there is irresolution in our lives. Focus, focus, focus. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks. Come from a different cloth. Y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the ruckabar. Now we eat it from state to state. We scrape the plate. I'll put my eggs in the basket the leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success special guest, now
1: bring man. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Episode number 268 right here on the top 1% globally ranked podcast in the world decoding success. You're rocking with your host Matt Labrie. You just heard from our incredible guest that's joining us in just a few moments and I'm telling you now, giving you forewarning here, she is bringing a plethora of thought-provoking responses, wisdom, experiences, all of that to the table here. So she needs a proper introduction. We're getting to that in just a few moments. But beforehand, I have my hands on my heart right now to express gratitude to each and every one of you as we get reacquainted here today. I want to give you your flowers, give you kudos for showing up here right now for yourself. You could be doing anything in the world. You could be Netflixing music, not listening to a podcast, but no, you are showing up for yourself. And I think that is one of the most beautiful things that you could be doing right now. There's something within this episode you need. Otherwise, you simply wouldn't be here listening to it. The universe has led you here. We're really excited to have you, which is exactly what I wanted to say. Thank you so much for being here. And if you have the ability to do so, if you are driving, do not do this. But if you have the ability to do so, show yourself love, give yourself a hug, no matter how it may look, put your hands on your chest, your heart, whatever it may be, but show yourself that love because you deserve it for showing up for yourself. On that note, today, we are joined by an incredible individual. Now, I don't know how much of my energy you can feel coming through your speakers, your headphones, or whatever, but we are joined by a really incredible individual. Our friend Vienna Farren, licensed marriage and family therapist, one of New York City's most sought-after relationship therapists to boot. She has practiced therapy for over 15 years, and get this, we're talking over 20,000 hours. 20,000 hours of impacting individuals, that is incredible to say the least. Founder and owner of the group practice Mindful Marriage and Family Therapy. Now, she received her Master of Science in Marriage and Family Therapy from Northwestern University. She's been featured across the board. We're talking The Economist, Netflix, Vice, and Motherly. She's led workshops for Peloton, amongst many, many others. She currently lives in upstate New York with her husband, who was actually on this show as well. I'm sure you're going to figure that out soon. And the new author of The Origins of You, which is something we're talking about here today. Now, on that note, I'm letting you know this episode gets deep. It gets very deep. If you have the ability to take notes, we'd we'll love for you to do that. If not, come back to this episode because you're going to want to listen to it twice. We're talking about breaking our patterns to liberate the way we live and the way we love. Some of the topics include, if we don't resolve our past, what happens? How we develop our inner critic. If you have that, like myself, you know what I'm talking about. How to identify change. How do we know we're actually changing? What are the signs? You're going to be surprised by what we talk about here. Lastly, grief being the key we often dismiss or don't turn to. Why grief is so important? And there's so much more. I'm just giving you a quick little summary of some of my notes here. I'm really excited for you to be joining us. On that note. without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Vienna Farin. Vienna, welcome to Decoding Success. Thank you for being early and being on time. That's so incredible. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> <Looking> <laughs> very welcome.:
0: Yeah, I'm really too, looking man. forward
1: to this. I'm curious, How are you? In the process of launching a book? I know that is a strenuous process. Family business, work, all of that combined, how Mm -hmm. are you doing?
0: I have been describing (laughs) this as if you are someone who has ever juggled before, Mm. you know, when if and if you're not like an exceptional juggler, right, but (laughs) when you have the balls going and they're like, you're running around the room just to keep them up. That's what it feels like right now. No balls have dropped, which is great, but it's like right on the edge. There's so much going on, but it's it's a lot of excitement, honestly. Mm-hmm. I recently recorded the audio for my book, and I didn't know what that experience was going to be like. It's like, "Oh, you know, am I going to read it and then will there be a part of me that's like, ah, I should have said it this way or oh, like that didn't sound so great and, you know, just some of the the self-critiques and and criticisms there. And I, I read it. I read the whole book. And I was like, I love my book. And mm. so I think there's just this part as we get closer and closer, like, no, I feel so excited about it. I can't wait for it to be out in the world. Probably when this airs, it will be. And yeah, just like can't wait for this to just exist and see how people respond to it. So
1: that's a, absolutely a beautiful thing. I'm curious to learn how you move past those self critiques right? How do you move past not getting stuck and not putting something out into the world just because, right? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm really curious.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think actually early on in the writing process, it was a bit more challenging. Now I feel really confident about the book, but I remember when I first started writing, there was this part of me that wanted to nail it for everyone, and I was like, how do I write a book for someone who's been in therapy for decades versus someone who's never been to therapy and might never go? Right? Do, how do you speak to someone who you know, knows some of this information versus those who are meeting it for the first time? And it was such, you know, I'm a therapist by trade, you know, this is what I do day in and day out, I I still see lots of clients. And it's such a different experience than being in conversation with a person speaking specifically to what's happening in their lives, what had happened in their life prior to this moment. And Yeah, it was a really interesting process to be able to speak and teach when you can't be in conversation and clarify. And Mm -hmm. so there were a lot of those, you know, and it's interesting because I think I talk about this in the book, one of the, you know, five core origin wounds that I talk about is the worthiness wound. And that was something that was showing up there. Am I still good? Mm. Right. Right. It's like, is my work still good, even if I can't make this make sense for everyone, or even if this doesn't resonate for everyone, even if there are external critiques of it. And there was, you know, I had to really sit with that and and see this part that was showing up, right? This part that likes to get it right, that likes to support, you know, anybody and everybody that I can come into contact with. And to step away from that, right? To be able to say, you know, I am still proud of myself. I am Still proud of this work. And whether that's something that lands for everyone or no one, you know, I still want to put that out there. And I think back to when I first started my Instagram account, the goal was if one person a day is offered a new perspective, that feels like a win. And I feel the same way about the book. You know, obviously it's going to go out to more than one, one person and hopefully more than one person, you know, is affected by it in a meaningful way. But as long as one, you know, that's a win. And honestly, if I'm being, you know, it's like, I am that person already, like this process of writing the book all, brought me to my knees. It like, it challenged <laughs> all the things. And I feel like, better because of it. You know, mm. I feel like I grew and expanded in such significant ways because of it. I can't believe honestly that I have a book that's coming out. That's <laughs> incredible. Yeah. So, that's you know, incredible. it's, I think it's just recognizing, right. When that self critique, right? I always say that the, the inner critic didn't start with us being unkind to ourselves right? Like usually that inner critic is developed because someone else had some things to say about us at one point and we've absorbed them, right? Or we've learned that in order to be loved, connected to, validated, given attention, we have to show up in a particular way, whether that's being perfect, being the people pleaser, whether that's being more quiet, whether that's being exceptional at sports, you know, whatever it might be. It's like when we're talking about a worthiness wound, we're talking about the conditions that are required for us to feel good about ourselves. And so when we're in a place of critique, oftentimes there's this part of us, it's like trying to create the conditions, right, for us not to feel the pain. Right. right. If I, even though obviously when we're critiquing ourselves, it's very unkind, but it's like, okay, if I can over here, if I am like that nasty voice in the head, that's like, come on, let's go. You know, it's like, if I can perform, if I can show up, if I can be who I've been taught, I'm supposed to be in order for other people to like me, appreciate me, validate me. Right. Then I can quote unquote, be safe in the world. It's an illusion, but obviously it's learned through, you know, our relationships and obviously the work that I do is understanding our family of origin, you know, the family systems that we grew up in and how that develops. And contributes, you know, to these wounds. So
1: I love this so far. I'm really curious to learn how to start reversing that inner critic. Right? It's obviously something that we absorb through society, through Mm -hmm. people close to us, near and far. How do we start to reverse that?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, all of the work that I do is try is about understanding our origin stories, meaning the first time that something significant happens in our lives that sort Mm -hmm. of lays the foundation and the framework for us. We can have beautiful. Origin stories, right? Like the our favorite first memories, but we also have really negative first experiences as well that contribute to the beliefs that we're not worthy or deserving of good things, that we're not good enough, that we don't belong, that we can't trust people, that we're not safe in this world emotionally, physically, sexually, and beyond, right? And so, yeah, for me, this is about understanding the origins of the criticism right when you say like how do we how do we rewind that right how do we unpack that right so that we don't keep having that critic be in the driver's seat well Mm -hmm. for me it's about understanding the origins of it who was the first person Who said that to you? Or who was the first person you heard say that about themselves? You know, most of the time, like as little humans in the world, right? Like we are learning both through experience and through observation. So you might not have had a parent who said something super critical to you, but you might have overheard them saying it about themselves or to one another. You know, it's like there's plenty of blueprints in which we come into these criticisms. And so, yeah, for me, the first place to look is like, okay, where's the origin? of this where it was the first time you either experienced it or observed it play out right so that's a yeah that's, that's our first <laughs> yeah
1: now what happens if you don't necessarily remember the first time right and i'm going to give you an example mm-hmm. i i had to have been in like 4th grade this is the first time i recall ever yeah. being shamed for crying mm-hmm. right I was fourth or fifth grade playing basketball nonetheless, Mm -hmm. and I took a charge, right? I was on defense. I took a charge, offensive foul. Uh It was our ball. And we came back down the court, and my teammate who went to public school here in New York City was, Uh I'm going to be honest, he was tougher than me. You know, like he was a tough kid. He was like, dude, like, why are you crying? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't like, oh, like I wasn't full on tears, but that yeah. was one of the first moments I ever mm-hmm. remember of that. And I don't remember anything before that. So it, mm-hmm. the reason I'm asking this is if you don't necessarily remember the first moment, does remembering mm-hmm.
0: any moment matter? Absolutely. And that may yeah. have been the first moment, honestly. And, but it's a great question because a lot of people don't have memories that go way back. And so sometimes the best place to start is. The last time you remember it and working yourself back from there you know our systems are brilliant systems and if they need to protect us from certain things they will and and that plays out in not always remembering the pain from the past obviously especially if it's too much for our system to handle or know what to do with and so yes we can absolutely work backwards but yeah i mean i think that example for you it is like it might have been the first time that someone said anything like that to you. It wasn't somebody who was a part of your blood family, but it was this person who, and I don't know, you know, the like, in fourth grade or sure. brotherhood, but you know, the like when your team, right? Your teammates, depending on how intensive a team it is, right, it's like these people can be really close knit individuals in your life and you want to be liked by these people, right? We want to belong and we want to fit in. And then here's this person, maybe you really respect the kid and you're like, he's so good at basketball. I really want him to like me or whatever. It is, and he's like, dude, why are you crying? Yeah. Right. And you're like, because I am winded. Somebody just nailed me and I took one for the <laughs> team. Come on. Right. But it's like, yeah, right. This moment. I say it in the book. All it, it can take, this like one little moment in life mm. that can shift something. I talk about a client of mine who shared with me that in fifth grade, the girl that he really liked said, I would like him if he was just taller. Wow. And you know, now he's a 30-something-year-old man, and that moment still stands out to him, right? And there's lots of layers to it. But I think it's like sometimes we, when we identify that it can just be this comment in passing, Right? where we can sit here and we can rationalize it. Like this guy on your team maybe didn't mean any harm. It's just in the moment. He's like, come on, man, suck it up. Likely right. has heard that from somebody else himself. Maybe he cried once and heard those words too. And so we can sit here and have an explanation for it. But that's the thing that I want my clients to move away from, right? I want them to be able to still connect to the impact and the effect that the thing hat, no matter how small or big it is. So many times people get into this space, I call it wound comparison, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're like, well, my story is not as bad as this person's story. You're like, I shouldn't be sitting here talking about a kid in fourth grade or this girl in fifth grade who said this comment, we were kids, whatever, right? And it's like, these are the things that we do usually as humans, right? It's like we minimize, we invalidate, we distort, we rationalize it, we intellectualize it for a number of reasons. But all of these things are a distraction away from the pain. You know, Mm -hmm. all of these things are a distraction away from us actually being able to name the thing that impacted us. And like I said before, may have set or contributed to that foundation or framework to your point like maybe it wasn't the first time that you felt shame or embarrassment but it's certainly something that contributed to it and those moments are such important moments for us to identify so that we can actually allow ourselves to feel you know and, and work through the process that we need to work through in order to you know get to the other side and feel a bit more resolved
1: yeah, it's funny because I know the exact moments that reinforce that one too, which is oh, it, it yeah. takes some work. It takes some work for sure. But I'm curious, without like comparing here and mm-hmm. – I'm asking this question just for the sake of conversation, right? I don't want anyone to think that I'm minimizing or putting you on the hot seat here, but I'm really curious to learn what you feel are like the top three patterns you've seen from your experience, whether it be professionally what you write about in the book and beyond, mm-hmm. maybe your personal life, the top yep. three patterns that you feel are holding us back from living freely and loving to the best of our potential.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. I mean, there's endless stories, right? And probably themes that can go with that. But i think i think. I think the main thing that I would say here is that when we do not resolve the pain from our past, and obviously the book, The Origins of You, is specifically focused on our childhood pain right? Mm -hmm. If we don't resolve the pain from the past, it will come along with us into our adult lives and relationships, and it will run the show, right? It will be the thing that creates and maintains the unwanted patterns in your life, right? Whether it's the same conflict that you have with a partner or a parent or your adult child, whether it's the fact that you date emotionally unavailable people over and over again, whether it's the fact that you're chronically unhappy at every job that you have, whatever the unwanted pattern is that's in your life right now, that is the thing that's pointing you back to something that is unresolved, right? Mm -hmm. Patterns will let us know that there is irresolution in our lives, right? Like, and sometimes people are like, well, can't you just like make a change? And it's like, sure, cool. If you can make a change and that changes it, good on you. But if you're trying to make changes and you keep finding yourself back into the same pattern, Change out the content, right? Fight about yeah. something different, whatever it is. But like, if you still find yourself engaging in the same thing, right? That's a really important indicator that we need to turn around. The other thing is like, and it's tough, right? Obviously, my work is <laughs> like, and you're like, don't start with, we have to talk about the pain from your childhood. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's not the easiest thing to do, right? It's like, oh, really? That stuff was so long ago. Is it still really running the show? But with, you know, I've, as I said before, before I'm a, a therapist, I work with clients and now, and I've worked with over, I've, I've done over 20,000 hours of you know, face-to-face cow. therapy yeah. with individuals and couples and families. And I have yet to meet someone who doesn't have origin pain. you know. And like, I think that's to be able to look back and name what's there and to do it with gentleness and compassion for the self and for others, right? Remembering that we're all humans who are part of a multi-generational system, right? There we're all links in that, but also being able to hold ourselves and others, you know, accountable for what the pain was. Like that piece is so important. And so we have to manage the parts of ourselves that are like, well, they did the best that they could, or you know, the people who want to idealize, you know, their families or anybody who was a part of the, you know, parental system. And, you know, sometimes we're really scared of opening, quote unquote, the can of worms. Mm. And so like another piece is to tend to the fear of looking back. You know, it's like so many people want to stay focused on what they're coming into therapy with, you know, they're like, I want to figure this out. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about your childhood. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're like, no, 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 no. I want to figure this thing out. I'm like, okay, but we're not, if we don't, we won't be able to really figure that out if we don't understand the full context of your story. And so when people are unwilling To look at that, that is usually a constraint. Right. So back to your question of like, what's a thing that I really want people to hear is like, yeah, if we can't look at that, the stuff that you're trying to solve for right now is only going to go so far. Again, connected to the first point, which is if there's that unwanted pattern over and over again, I'm not suggesting that you can't make changes without, you know, looking at your childhood. If you're successful at that, incredible, right? If there's a quick behavioral change that you can make, beautiful. But if you are finding yourself in that unwanted pattern over and over again, that's where we need to go. So it's like, you know, it's, I work with relationships. And so I do see individuals as well, of course, but when I'm working with relationships, whether it's relationship to self, relationship to other, right? It's like we have to understand our own and the other person's story too, right? So everything mm. that I'm talking about here, if you're in a partnership, we really want to understand that, that about the person as well. Because sometimes we're trying a solution for the conflict or wherever it is that we're stuck in a particular relationship. But if we don't have that information, we're coming at it with a blank piece of paper, right? And so many people want to just brute force their way forward instead of actually slowing down and connecting to these stories.
1: Now, what's your take on if someone has the belief that the patterns they're experiencing in their life is just how life is.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think those belief systems of like, meaning this is just the deck of cards that I got and, you know, and so, okay. But if that's still the deck of cards that you got, we still have to explore the irresolution that's showing up there. You're not just this blank slate that, okay, here I am at whatever age, here's life is happening to me, right? This is what I got. Well, okay. But if those are the cards, you still have cards that include parents, step parents, adults in your life, a childhood that you lived through, you know, it's like, those are still things that need to be addressed. And so, okay, sure. If this is the, these are the cards you got dealt, or this is just how life happens. Sure. But I would also want to understand Like what that belief system is serving, you know, like, okay, that's your belief. What does that serve for you to believe that? What does that protect you from? What does it maintain? Does that allow you to just be angry at life? You know, like what does that permit for you if this is the belief system that you have? right? Is it, oh, and then no matter what I do, yeah, like, okay, I'm going to do this resolution work. Sounds good. And then what? Like, no, life is just going to keep giving me this. Why do you want to believe that? What does that mm. serve, right? A lot of times, right, that can keep us in a, a victim space, right? Bad things always happen to me. And I'm taking a little bit further, I think, than what sure. you presented. Sure. Yeah, no, I, but- I get it. Yeah you know, but it's like, yeah, bad things always happen to me or nothing can change. And it's like, well, okay, where does that belief come from? Right? What does it serve? Why would you want to hold on to that? Right? What do you get from it?
1: What does it usually serve though?
0: Well, nothing healthy, <laughs> you know? sure. but like it can maintain being the victim. It can maintain having a story that is deeply painful right? And of course, you know, we sit here and we're like, well, why would anybody want a story that's deeply painful? Or why would anybody mm-hmm. want to stay in that space? But it's like, well, what does staying in that space serve? Do people feel bad for you? Do you get attention because of it? What, you know, right? Like what yeah. happens when you're in that space? Are you reminded of the pain that was there from the first memories that you have? Maybe nobody does pay attention to you and it re- let it remind you that you're not important and that nobody cares the same way that your parents didn't, mm. right? Are you committed to proving a story? right? And so when I say, what does it serve? I don't mean that it like serves something great for you. No, in, in fact, most of the time it serves something that's really unhealthy, like dysfunctional or maintains pain for a person. But it's hard right. to look, you know, that's, it's not an easy thing to hear, right? Like, does that maintain you staying in the victim position? Ooh. Nobody likes to hear that, right? Like that's not an easy thing to chew Absolutely. on. Absolutely, But that right. might be more comfortable for them, right? Yeah. This is yeah. familiar. This is what I know. Yeah. And listen, especially when somebody believes that that's what they deserve, mm. right? Like this is what I get. And again, why I go back to understanding that bigger story is why do you believe that this is what you get? Why do you believe that this is the life that you quote unquote deserve to have? Did you have somebody tell you that you were a piece of shit when you were growing up? You have somebody tell, you know, like, what were the systems around you communicating to you explicitly or implicitly? And those are the things that we have to understand and unpack because otherwise you're right. Some people will go their entire lives. Maybe you even know somebody like that, right? Go their entire lives. Just like that world is out to get me. I don't ever get anything good in this life. My life is, you know, and like, and nothing can change about it.
1: So powerful. Hmm. I want to ask you a question that I just started asking this week. So probably asked it maybe like three times on the podcast <laughs> okay. so far. It's a deep question. And I know you're going to have a really incredible response to it. It is, how would my life be different if I knew what you know?
0: Mm. Well, I don't know your life well. So I don't know what you do or don't know already. But the way that I want to respond to that first is by saying that you would know that change can happen. Mm. And I have the really great honor of getting to walk alongside so many people who prove that to me over and over again, that no matter how painful their story is, no matter how awful their past is, that there is space for change to happen, for resolution to happen. I would also say that when in doubt, grieve more. Mm. When you're stuck, grieve. That's going to always be your answer right? We need grief and that's not reserved just for the death of others, right? It's like we are constantly in relationship with grief if we allow it. And so when we're stuck, right, when we can't crack those patterns, right, we have to come into a relationship with something that needs our grief, something that needs our practice of grieving.
1: Absolutely. I'm curious to learn, how do we know change is happening? And I have a really, I'm not going to share it yet. I want to hear what you say first. Mm -hmm. I have a really unorthodox, potentially unorthodox or unconventional way of seeing change happening. But Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to learn like from what you see in your clients, from what you've seen in your own personal Mm -hmm. life, how do we know change is coming about?
0: I was just speaking to a client recently, and she said she was being really hard on herself about having stayed in a relationship longer than she wanted to. You should know that prior to this particular relationship, she had been in long-term relationships prior uh, where she, quote-unquote, overstayed for Mm. a decade each time. And she was... In session, she said given herself a hard time. I overstayed. I I should have left, you know, a few months ago. And I paused her and I said, Can we maybe be a little gentle here? Because if I look back, right, historically you have overstayed for a decade. And what you're talking about here is overstaying for a few months. It stopped her in her tracks. And she's like, Okay. Yeah, uh huh. It's like sometimes it's not about not entering the pattern that we know better not to enter into, right? Sometimes change is about exiting sooner, right? Sometimes change is about doing something. It could be a tiny little thing, just a little bit differently than we've done it before. Change is about awareness certainly change is about integration as well right meaning like i'm actually doing the thing differently but sometimes we're not ready to do that right sometimes change is just like okay i see the pattern like i'm still going to engage the pattern <laughs> you know like <laughs> i'm still going to engage this conflict or i'm still going to date this emotionally unavailable person but i'm aware of it and i talk about a story in the book where you know i had this like major aha moment i was dating someone and i was yeah, I really thought that there was a future with this person. And a couple months into dating, his ex came back into the picture. She wanted to be back with him, and he was in this place of contemplation of to go back with her, to stay with me. We were in a relationship at the time. And if you read the book, you'll you'll understand more of the like. Sure, like I was, I pretended like I was fine and unaffected by things. Very connected to what happened in my childhood. And you know, I'm in this in in this moment saying, you know, it's all good, it's all fine. I yes take all the time you need with her to really figure out, you know, who you want to be with, yada, yada, yada. I was really ignoring how I felt. I was really actually not okay what was going on. Um, it felt very disrespectful. The boundaries didn't feel aligned for me, but I did not have any type of boundaries at that point in my life because I was such a people pleaser and I never wanted to rock the boat. And I had a conversation with a dear friend and I remember everything, like every light bulb went off, I realized that the role that I was playing as an adult woman was the same role that I played as a little girl. I had this girl Mm -hmm. who was the people pleaser in a family system that was going through a divorce with everything crashing and burning around her. I didn't want to add any more stress to the plate. And so I pretended like I was fine and unaffected by anything. And I flew under the radar. And this moment, it struck me. and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like literally repeating the exact thing and I've been doing it for decades. And long story short, I wind up ending the relationship. This is the first time I ended a relationship in my life. Every other time I'd been broken up with, because it's really hard to break up with people when you keep telling yourself and the world that you're fine, (laughs) that everything's But so I end things with him. And the way I describe it is, if you've ever cross-country skied. I haven't. Okay. But you'll, you'll know this still, that if the track in the snow is there, it's there's less resistance, of course. And that moment for me was jumping off the track into fresh powder. It was Mm. so much harder to get the skis to move. Listen, my like palms were sweating when I had the conversation. My heart was like beating out of my chest. But it was jumping off the familiar tracks and jumping into something that was way harder for me to do. Totally new, unfamiliar, nerve wracking, Mm. vulnerable, all the things. But then like, living it, you know, existing through it, being like, okay, I'm still here. I'm alive. All is well. Like, yes, I'm heartbroken. Yes. I'm going to cry for the next two months or whatever it was, you know, it's like, yes, all of those things are still going to happen. And I'm still here. And that was a moment of, you know, it's funny sometimes when we look back at these moments of change, oh my gosh, it was so simple. Yet it was so deeply profound for me. I've had many moments like that, that have been such deeply profound moments that when you look at them, you're like, okay, you broke up with somebody and you decided that something wasn't okay when before you said it was okay. That doesn't seem like a, such a big deal, mm. but it is, right? It is when we operate in the same way over and over and over again. And so that was a really big moment of change for me. Sometimes change looks like the 180, you know, and sometimes change looks like 1%. You know? absolutely but I'm curious yeah. to hear what your what your definition of it is
1: yeah I mean I don't know if it's a definition or more so a way to identify that change is coming about right uh-huh. so you know I'm not excluded from anything we're talking about here in fact I'm mm-hmm. very involved in you know rejection neglect all of that in the childhood yeah. and the other day this is when I thought about it it was actually two days ago I had invited a buddy of mine to my high school basketball game not that I'm in high school but my High school's nationally ranked. They're a really incredible program. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's really awesome to go to, you know, uh-huh. and it's not yeah. like going to see the Knicks, but you're watching kids that are going to be in the NBA one day. Yeah. So he said no. And instantly I felt the rejection mm-hmm. and I didn't respond right away. I didn't react. But my theory came about where change is happening for me, not be not just because of the fact that I didn't react, mm-hmm. but because I'm being tested. Mm -hmm. And I think that when change comes about, life, the universe, God, whoever you believe in will test you, Mm -hmm. not to say that it's solidified but to give you ground to step up on and keep moving forward in your journey. Mm-hmm. And that was my theory of change taking place in that particular moment or that area of my life.
0: I love that. I mean, what you're saying is that mm. when you notice a test presents itself, your life is letting you know that that growth and change is happening around exactly. you. Yeah, exactly. That there's, right, that there is an offering here. And right, like sometimes it is just the test and you're like, oh, okay, I see it. And then also sometimes it's, the, you know, managing something slightly differently, like I was saying Mm -hmm. before, or there being less of a charge you know, like it might not be that there is zero charge of rejection, but maybe you're like, oof, I feel rejected, and maybe then there's this part of you that's like, no, that that's okay. Like somebody's allowed to say no. You know, exactly. you might, right? Like yeah. it's like you might walk yourself through something that you wouldn't be able to walk yourself through before. You know, and so it's like there's so many different ways that that change can present. But I, I love what you just said, right? Of like, this is a good indicator. Right. It's like if the test is being presented, right, the universe, God, whomever is like, oh, okay, I see you. (laughs) Let's see see if it's real. You know, let's see if you're actually you're actually here for it. How is the game? So it's coming
1: up. But honestly, it's so incredible to watch them. I I just went, you know, Carmelo Anthony's son Uh is on the team. Like they're just such a talented bunch. Yeah. And I played, you know, but I mean, I was someone that rode the bench. Uh, uh-huh. I was a baseball player, not a basketball okay. player, but I okay. was athletic enough. And it's just so incredible to watch people, like, even having this conversation with you. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to get a little emotional saying this, like, seeing people pursue what they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Like, even just hearing the way that you speak about it, I just think it's so beautiful. And I almost think so many of us don't view ourselves as artists, mm-hmm. right? Like, you might classify yourself as a therapist or an author, but I. I view you right now as an artist, right? The way that you're speaking and the way that you're conveying your message and the impact that you're having with it as well, that's artistry. And whether it be watching individuals run up and down a court and put a ball in a basket or, you know, having someone sit on a couch or on a Zoom call and communicate, I just think it's so beautiful when you see people like doing something they're passionate about. And that's why I go, you know, and that's why I do this as
0: well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to watch people operate in their passion for sure. Yeah. And you're right, it is an art form. I always say, you know, that therapy is the intersection of, you know, the science of it and also the art of it. And if you don't have the art form of this work down, you know, it's, it's going to be a little bit trickier. You know, you mm. can, you know, I think in order to be a phenomenal therapist requires the art form to be something that, you know, is exceptional.
1: Absolutely. It leads me to ask, you know, we were talking about people pleasing, neglect, you know, worthiness. How much is all of that connected? Like, that's something that I'm really curious about, you know. I mean, I know what I experience, you know what you experience. How much are they like, you have one, you're going to have the other type of thing?
0: <laughs> There's a few people who have um, gotten early copies of the book and they'll ping me like, is it possible to have all five wounds? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, I'm going through the pages and they all seem to resonate. So for the listener, I talk about five origin wounds in the book, the worthiness wound, the belonging wound, the prioritization wound, the safety wound, and the trust wound. And it is, you know, I identify in the book, two. I have a worthiness wound, and I have a safety wound. And, you know, it's likely that we have one that really stands out, right? And even if you don't know much of this, you know, you might be hearing this right now, like, oh, yeah, what? Yeah, I think I definitely struggle to feel like a priority in, you know, people's lives. Or, yeah, I really struggle to trust. Like, there might be one that you're like, bam, that's it, you know. But I have found that when people are reading, they're like, I wasn't expecting this, you know. Like, I knew that I'd have X, but I wasn't expecting Y and Z. So, you know, t- back to your question, I think it's common to have identify and resonate with a number of them. I think the beauty of the book is that I wrote this book for you to read it as the adult child today, but you're also going to read it as a partner. You're also going to read it as a parent. You're also going to read it as a child to your parents or the adult figures you had in your life. And so even when one wound doesn't resonate, if that's the case, it may be the wound that your partner has. You know, it may be the wound that your best friend has. And so there's going to be so much relevance in being able to really tune in to what these wounds are. And, you know, it's not that if you have this wound, then you're most likely to have this one too. You know, there's, and I'm very clear that like this is not black and white. Nobody's fitting into boxes. Like this is a framework. I think that we, When I sat down to write, I was like, okay, jotting down all of the wounds that I think exist in the world, right? And eventually I got to these five, and I think that they really are the umbrella ones for so much. But what's interesting about wounds is that you can have the same event take place in multiple people's lives, but it gets internalized differently. So Mm -hmm. for example, a parent who abandons their child Okay. One of the parents leaves when they're five years old, let's call it. And that what, you know, child A might internalize that as a worthiness wound. Parent left because I'm not good enough for you to stick around. Child B might internalize it as a trust wound. I can't trust the people closest to me in my life because they will always let me down and betray me. Yeah. Child C might internalize it as a safety wound. Nobody cares about the emotional impact decisions like that have on my life. And so I say that, right, because it's like, again, you're not trying to fit into some story of, oh, this happened. So this is what this means, right? You are on a quest to connect to your own individual story. And really understand what that created and developed within you. Mm. What fears, what insecurities, what doubts, what framework did it lay down for you that is still running the show for you, right? I'm a really big believer that there are as many different ways to heal as there are humans in this planet. But what I will say with great conviction is that I cannot, for the life of me, understand how we would pass over understanding and exploring our family of origin in order to get to this healing work. I don't care how you get there, but I'm going to tell you that you, I would really encourage you to look at your family system or systems. For me, it was two, right? My parents got divorced. So I learned how to operate in two different systems. So some people might have one, some people might have two, some might have multiple, especially depending on how many people kind of came in and left. You know, some folks will have, you know, a parent remarry a number of times and that partner is, the many partners might be really significant in the story and that we must Look at that. This is so I think I got away though from your original no, question.
1: No, no, no. I, it leads me to ask you this is something I'll never understand, or I shouldn't say that. I'm still trying to understand it. Well, well let's mm-hmm. see. Maybe we'll get there. Why do we internalize events differently, right? I, I think for me, it's easier to understand that perspectives are different, mm-hmm. right? If you and I are walking down a uh, New York City street. And we see a Rottweiler and I freak out and you go to pet the dog. Like, Mm -hmm. I understand that I have a negative experience. You have a positive one with that particular breed. But when it comes to, you know, the five year old whose parent left and Mm -hmm. one internalizes it as I'm unworthy, they left because of me and the other has no issue with it almost leads me to believe that from a spiritual context, it's like more soul talk than anything because I just, you know, I don't know. I'm lost when it comes to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can understand from that spiritual perspective what you're saying. I think if we take it from an experiential and environmental perspective, it's all of the things that happen after that moment that create or maintain or dismiss the story. You could potentially have... Somebody who abandons, and maybe you then have the other parent or other, you know, family members or community around you that supports in such a way where you're not actually left with the belief that you're unworthy, right? I think sometimes where it goes is often because a child, well, so, so one, right, cognitively, right, a child's brain is not in a developmental stage where they're able to do anything other than personalize what's happened right? We're not in this place to be, the prefrontal cortex is not operating at its highest level to really understand and rationalize what's going on. So automatically it's going to be personal until somebody tells us it's not, right? Until somebody's really there to sit down with us. But what often happens, and especially the generation, I, I don't know how old you are, but I think that the you know generation that probably many of your listeners are in, you know, did we have a lot of parents who were able to sit down in these moments? I think we're getting better at this now where we're like, okay, I mindful. I'm aware. I want to be conscious of what's going on. I want to name the hard things with our children and have some of these conversations. But do we grow up in an environment where someone was able to sit down after a parent left or something else, right? Whatever it is that happened and really work through the feelings and emotions that are presenting in that moment Mm -hmm. in order to strengthen the narrative later on in life. So, you know, How does one internalize it? You know, which which wound does it go to probably has a lot to do with what it looks like after that moment and what is either supported or denied or reiterated.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that perspective. I wasn't necessarily thinking about the after. Right. I always Mm. focus whenever I think about that. I think about the particular event. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. I only have you for a few more minutes. I want to make sure that I'm covering the book. I have to ask. We talked about a lot already. Yeah. But if someone picks up this book, that, and by the way, everything is going to be in the show notes, websites, socials, where you can get the book, everything's in the show notes. Someone picks up this book, but they could only take one thing away from it. Ooh. What would you want that one thing to be?
0: What a question, Matt. <laughs> oh, that's so hard. Okay, one takeaway. This is a great question, and I need to prepare this answer for other interviews. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, man, this is hard. Okay, to do your best. To balance the grace and compassion, like I said before, with the acknowledgement, ownership and accountability. There's something right at the end of the book, psychologist Michael Kerr says, and I love this, and I think it's a really important piece for all of us is is to think of your mother as your grandmother's daughter and see what changes. And so I think just Mm -hmm. to remember Right? That we were all tiny humans at one point navigating family systems and the world around us. Everybody has a story. So do you. And the moment that you can connect to that story and other people's as well, but the moment that you can connect to that story in a different way than you probably have before is the moment that you're going to start walking closer and closer to your healing.
1: I love that. For clarity, I want to ask, what is the purpose of viewing our mothers, our fathers, our grand, I mean, I still have my grandfather, like viewing them as their younger self, the child, like, what's the purpose of that?
0: Gentleness. Gentleness. Compassion, right? It's like, because we know them as adults only, right? Right. Right. We know them as adults only, and we have lots of opinions about them as adults only. And when we can see them as a little tiny human, right, like there's a softness that happens there, Same for a partner, right? Like a lot of times we're like, you know, generally we only know our partners unless you met them in, you know, sixth grade or something, you know, (laughs) it's like very few people, but it still happens. It's like most of us only know our partners as adults, you know, can you think of this person you love in these moments when it's really hard as a tiny human who had heartbreak right Mm -hmm. as a tiny human who went through some hard stuff right and like it softens us right and i don't mean like soften no backbone yada yada, right i mean softens us like open-hearted and when we can be open-hearted there's there's something beautiful that can happen there i'm giving you more than one takeaway but i'm gonna say this because i think it's also important to to hear that context isn't an excuse Okay. Right, so when we connect to context, I think incredible stuff happens. Right, here's the story of your mother. Mm. Oof, okay. But just because there's a story doesn't mean that whatever happened is okay. Right? It's not right. an excuse. Right? And so par- this book really tries to balance that, right? To see it, to see others this way without excusing behavior. And yeah, mm-hmm. you know, this book is about resolving the pain from the past, and I hope more people We'll dive into it.
1: Absolutely. You know what's funny? When I started doing inner child stuff, whether it be like John Bradshaw's book Homecoming or Mm -hmm. whatever it is, right, it made me realize I've never viewed my parents As human, I view Mm -hmm. them as parents. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents got divorced as well, and they just always chugged along. They, you know, they went to their jobs, they did this, they did that. So it's a really interesting perspective to view them as children. In fact, as you were saying that, I blinked and I saw my mother as her, Mm -hmm. like, I know what she Mm looks like as a child. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I I think that's a really interesting perspective, and I appreciate that. And then
0: what happened when you saw her as a child in your body?
1: Well, I was trying to stay present in this yeah. conversation, so it was more-
0: <laughs> You're like, blink, it... blink, come back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. And it's funny because I, I literally have a picture of myself as, oh, I don't know if I could even show you, as myself, as my background. Tiny you. Yeah, second grade. It was when I was making my communion. You can't really see. I, have I can all my see apps. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh, when mm. I was making my communion in second grade. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's they a like really that. interesting perspective. So I appreciate you sharing that. Like yeah. that. If there's something I take away from this, which has mm-hmm. all been incredible, it's that because it's very actionable as well. So mm-hmm. I wanted mm-hmm. to say thank you. I have to ask you. I ask you a lot of questions. But what's a question you wish more people would ask you? And how would you answer it?
0: About this work? About anything. Hmm. I mean, people have such great questions about this. I feel like we cover so much what I would be doing if I wasn't doing this. And what would that be? Probably an athlete.
1: I was gonna say, would it be as someone that skis?
0: No. But no. I well, I played lacrosse in college. Okay. So probably would have stayed in that space a bit more. But who knows, right? Like whatever I whatever sport I would have developed more if I was like taking that path. But yeah, probably something. Something in that. Do
1: you have any regret around not pursuing becoming an athlete?
0: No, because no. I, I, I was an athlete. I, I did play football for a long time up until probably five years ago. And I got, my nose was broken. My final, I think it was my final game. I don't think I came back after that. So yeah, as a, here I am, a couples therapist, you know, have to go in, see clients with my, you know, just (laughs) bruised up face was like, oh, this is not, I yeah, I can't keep up with this. But, you know, I did think about still in the psychology world, I was either going to do relationship therapy or I did think about doing sports therapy, like to be a therapist for like a big sports team would have been really cool. Yeah. I still think about that actually sometimes like to work with to work with athletes in the psyche.
1: Yeah. I mean, it comes up a lot, right? We actually just had Dr. Michael Gervais on who's incredible. He works with the Seahawks and a bunch of other people as well. Mm -hmm. But just having conversations with him about how much actually childhood impacts performance.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's why there's such crossover too. It's like, you know, if you're not resolving what's, you know, if there's anything that's happening in your personal life, right, that's like distracting you away from your game, like it's going to impact you. And so there's a need to tend to the unresolved pain, which goes back to what we're talking mm-hmm. about today, right? And so it's like you, I assume that most sports teams do have, you know, on staff people for that, but it's powerful work, you know, if you're not performing well, right, It's like, I feel like somebody came in for the Yankees who, like, this was long ago, probably in the, 2000s, somebody in the postseason, like not hitting well at all. And they're like, bring in the therapist. I really? forget who it oh, was. Wow, that's good I then. don't know if it was like a rod back in the day or like someone like that. But it was like, there was something where everybody's like, okay, we got to bring somebody in ASAP to get out of this strikeout streak.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know what, this is very synchronistic for me. I'm going to tell you why the other day it was Monday. I was going to start this program and I did start it and I had a lot of fear of failure. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to make it public. Mm -hmm. And then I said to myself, it was very early. It was like 7am. I was on the track. I was going for a little walk. And I said to myself, where does this stem from? And this is where it all ties in.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Even when I was playing sports specifically, I remember vividly as a pitcher, Mm -hmm. there was a One particular game, I was throwing an absolute gem, and I I loved every moment of it. I think pitching is very artistic as well. Mm -hmm. And the other team, the opposing pitcher, was throwing an absolute gem himself. So it was like 0-0, going into the last inning, and... My fear of failure came up, and this is where the psychology and sport ties in. Fear of failure came up, and I've done this multiple times, and I'm admitting it publicly now. I've never Mm -hmm. once done this before, but I lied to my coach and told him my shoulder was bothering me Mm -hmm. just so that I couldn't lose. Yeah, like It wouldn't be my fault if we Mm -hmm. lost, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I've done that multiple times, and Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see where the two sides collide. Furthermore, to make this more synchronistic, I picked Mm -hmm. up a new book Monday first chapter first page talks about fear of failure Mm -hmm. wasn't expecting that and i was just Mm -hmm. like holy shit but
0: yeah crazy yeah and if we had more time maybe we would sit here and understand a little bit more about what's on the other side of that fear of failure you know like what happens when you fail or what's the fear of what happens when you fail
1: i could tell you firsthand it comes down to receiving love when i accomplish yeah right like that's what it was and there's more to dive into. In fact, I was talking about this with Connor, yeah. when I had him on the show, just a little bit. Really interesting stuff. I mean, I yeah. can go so deep on this, but it's just so crazy to see how yeah. our worlds collide, but you know? It is.
0: And that's it, right? Is like the condition of love, right? The condition of connection, yeah. right? Be an exceptional pitcher and you'll get that. Mess up, lose, drop the ball at the end, whatever it is. Like then you risk the love. Right. Mm -hmm. And like that points right to the thing that needs more of your attention. So do you still pitch?
1: No, I don't. I actually tore my labrum my senior year of high school. And then my freshman year of college, I tore my other labrum. So uh, th- yeah. that was me saying, all right, God wants me to be in business, not on the baseball field anymore.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, right. I know that was a it. very uh, physical manifestation of like, you're not allowed to drop out anymore. Like this is just the end, right? That like was this. it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's like to look for where that still shows up today, oh, you plenty know, places. and yeah. like how to lean into Creating different conditions of relationships where failure is allowed, you know, where failure doesn't actually remove the love and connection that you seek either for yourself or with another person, you know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good.
1: I love this. I love this so much. Once again, I'm going to let everyone know that in the show notes, websites, socials, where they can get the book will be there. I'm going to ask you one last question, my favorite question to ask. I mean, you've given us a ton of advice already, so I don't know <laughs> what's going to come up here. But Ooh. I'm really curious. Vienna lives to whatever year you want to live, mm. whatever age that is. You mm-hmm. write as many books as you want to write. Mm. You go from 20,000 hours to 100,000 yeah, hours, right. whatever it is. Like you do it all. Uh, But you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. Meaning Mm -hmm. when I think of Vienna, this is the advice I think of. Mm. What is that advice?
0: Oh, I thought you were going to ask how I want to be remembered. Okay. A lot of of people
1: interpret it that way. A lot of people interpret it that way. But Mm -hmm. I'm asking like, what advice would you put on your tombstone type of thing?
0: Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to stick with what I said before. When in doubt, grieve more. Mm. Because grief is a gateway for just about everything. Everything that. that you want to heal. And so I think I'm sticking with that for now. But if we have an interview in another few years, you know, what, like you'll just keep checking in with me to see how that gets updated. But <laughs> for right now, that's that's what I'm sticking with. When in doubt, grieve more. I love that. And maybe <laughs> like don't outsource your worth. You know, right? Like that the mm. work is about insourcing all of it. Right? Whether it's worthiness, whether it's belonging, whether it's being a priority, like we constantly outsource all of that. So insource the stuff, you know, but I'm still sticking with my grief one.
1: No, I love all of that. Vienna, <laughs> thank you so much for this. This was absolutely incredible. Uh, really excited to put this out and make an impact with you. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You have just tuned into episode number 268 of the Decoding Success podcast featuring our friend Vienna Farron. And on that note, It's time to show yourself that love, especially if you didn't earlier. Make sure you show yourself that love. Put your hands on your heart. Give yourself a hug. How about a high five in the mirror? Do something to show yourself love and give yourself kudos for showing up, listening to this podcast, expanding your perspectives, your horizons, diving into such a deep conversation. It is time to give yourself that love. With that being said, you can check out Vienna in the show notes of this episode. You're going to be able to find where you can buy her new book. You can check her out on social media, her website, and everything in between. And if you do check her out on social, let her know that you found her here on Decoding Success. I'm sure as a creator, she would really appreciate knowing where her community is from. Now, again, show yourself that love. Connect with Vienna in the show notes. What we have coming up on episode 269, you're not going to want to miss. So make sure that you subscribe to the show if you haven't yet check out what we're putting out on social media for the quick little fire clips of each and every episode. If you want to check it out on YouTube, you're more than welcome to do so. I know I'm giving you a million and one call to actions here, but I want you to stay connected to this community. I want you to feel that you are getting some sort of omni-channel approach to all of the value that we're putting out. But until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.